We'll do it live. Here we go. Today is Sunday, December 6, 2015, and this is episode 141 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me today, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Jerry, how are you, sir? Good to see you. Likewise, how are you? Good, good. I know we kind of took a bit of a week off there due to Thanksgiving and other crazy stuff going on, but we're back. Yes, indeed we are. And coming up to the holidays here, uh, at least in the States, I imagine it's going to get a little little busier. So, you know, we might be a little sporadic in our recording over the next couple of weeks, but we'll do our best. That's right. So um, just before we get into everything, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And uh, I, I also wanted to announce some important changes to the podcast today. You know, I, I mentioned this on Twitter and it's... Um, Apparently, you know, it's gotten some mixed reactions, I guess. Uh, we have a sponsor now. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and, and play that spot right now. Frank's Funeral Services, catering to all your final needs. Frank's Funeral Services, we're waiting for you. All right, so there you have it. I, you know, I for one appreciate the free casket that we've been given as from our new sponsor. Well, I mean, it's good, right? We can, it's we good. Can... To, it's it's good to have some benefits from you know bringing on some. I we we held out for a long time. That's true, longer than most. Uh, this may impact our editorial comment around the funeral industry, though, and we're just we have to admit it up front. We have to be transparent. All right, so uh, so yes, moving on to more more serious endeavors. Uh, our first story tonight comes from ZDNet, and the title is "VTech Hack Gets Worse: Chat Logs, Kids' Photos Taken in Breach." So the story here is this actually happened a couple, I guess, about a week and a half ago now. Uh, th- by the time you're listening to this, the uh, this company, VTech, makes a number of kids' toys, including some tablets focused at kids. And apparently, uh, there's an app store where you can download and install apps on, on the, these uh, kids' tablets. And also has some functionality where parents can leave uh, voice and text messages for their kids. And uh, I think that kids can respond back. And of course, all of that stuff is stored forever, apparently, on uh, VTech's uh, website and in you know, of course, unencrypted and you know, not the encryption actually would probably help. But you know, there you have it. It's uh, it, it's all been stolen and um, the world is on fire apparently because two hundred thousand kids' uh, pictures are now on uh, now somewhere. And, and by the way, apparently, uh, as I understand it, at least the, the there's a person, one person has a, apparently uh, downloaded this data, 190 gigabytes as I understand it, and contacted a journalist 
and apparently is not intending to provide that data to anyone else. So uh, you know, it's but 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 the world is on fire. So here we are. Well, it's for the children. Well, that, that's true. But you know, the, I mean, when, when you put our children at risk, oh my sweet baby Jesus! <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, the the thing that strikes me about this is, um, I, I don't think there's anything particularly complicated about how they were attacked. We don't, I, I believe, uh, that the attack was actually using an SQL injection vulnerability. Um, you know, I think the problem is that we see a lot of organizations just storing data that you can only come back and haunt them. And I, I don't think they really often have an appreciation for the importance of the data. I mean, you know, in, in this particular case, you know, none of the data, I, well, I'm assuming none of the data is, you know, sensitive personal information or, you know, financial records or anything like that. It's, you know, it's, it's kids, tra- you know, it's chat transcripts of conversations between their parents and the, and the kids. You know, how bad can that be? So. Well, and their pictures. And their pictures, right. And, and, and the parents' account details so that they're able to figure out the addresses of those kids. Good point. So, and I do actually want to circle back and talk about that in a second, too. But on your earlier point about the collecting of data, uh, you know, one of the quotes in the story that we're, that we're talking about is from, uh, I'm going to bush the last name, but it's a vice president of security at uh, Trend Micro, Mark Nenek. Coven, and I apologize, Mark, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, he says, don't collect data because it might be useful at some point. This opens the organizations up to unnecessary risk. So I, I somewhat take exception with that comment because it seems at face value to be intuitive. And you're like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. But I, I have a couple of thoughts around this. So this data was out there and hanging around. And first thought was, how often does this actually happen? And I, I would wager fairly often. And it may be something that even the product managers and, and other management maybe don't even know is happening or aren't informed in that, you know, the devs or or, or the the ops guys or whomever else just are, are, for whatever reason, stuff gets stored somewhere. Maybe it's being done for you know, debugging reasons or testing reasons or just an oversight or casualness or whatever uh, unintentionally being done. And no one ever catches it or no one ever realizes it. Or the folks who know about it never necessarily report it up to someone who would um, assess that risk. And, and so first thing I would say is this is where a good third-party review of your data management around sensitive data comes in handy because we get into our own echo chambers and we get into our own assumptions of what is normal and not normal. And sometimes having a third-party view comes in very handy to sort of challenge that. Um, and then I'm going to shift gears entirely and counter the point I just said, which is, he says, don't collect data, opens up an unnecessary risk. And I said, well, my initial thought was, well, maybe. That is a very blanket statement. And that may or may not be true. It depends on the organization. Look at Google or Amazon. They collect tons of information all the time. I mean, they are a data aggregator. And they use it and they protect it, mostly. But they see value in the data. So my point is that that you can't just say don't collect data. That data may be useful to your organization. What I would say is understand the risk 
of collecting that data, what's the threat to that data, and understand where and how that data is being stored and how it's being used and protect it appropriately. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the thing that concerns me, and, and uh, there's really no clear indication that this is what happens in this particular case, but I can certainly see it happening, and uh, you know, I've, I've seen it firsthand, where an organization doesn't particularly understand the importance of the data that they are collecting. And, you know, so they, they just don't appreciate what would happen. And, and, and so from the, I, I, I'll just take a step back for a second. In, in many cases, the loss of a kid's picture or a chat transcript would be completely non-notable. Yeah. Right. And, but I think the issue here is that when you talk about all that data in aggregate, that's when, you know, I think that's, it's at that point that there needs to be a reconsideration of the importance of the data. And I don't think that that often happens because a lot of times, and I suspect in this particular case too, we think about things in the, you know, in the, in the you know, the very specific case, you know, what happens if we lose a kid's picture or what happens if we lose, and you know, not that that's okay, but it isn't earth melting if, if you do. Uh, but it's, you know, you're going to be on the front page of most major publications if you lose, you know, 200,000 kids data. Well, this is one thing I wanted to come out to, and I'm going way off our normal agenda here. But I do want to talk about risk measurement a little bit, because I was curious. Because there's just been the underlying vibe on this story that this is putting children at risk. And that this is absolutely unacceptable that our children could be put at risk like this. And so I'm asking, okay, what risk? And the the underlying vibe is that this may open the children up to some sort of child predator who could come and find them because now they've got their picture and they know where they live and they've got information about the children and now they can be victimized. Would you agree that that's kind of the underlying vibe here to uh, some yeah, extent? I, I'll be honest. I I don't, you know, the, the underlying vibe doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It just, it seems like it's become its own, you know, the, 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 the fear of, um, of being in this position and, and, and being in the news for this is its own concern. I, I would agree, but I was curious, what were the actual stats around child abductions in the U.S.? I wanted to know. Because in my mind, this is kind of what some of the people were talking about is, I, I saw a couple of articles about how with this information now, somebody could find out a lot about children and could victimize them, could abduct them, that sort of thing. So I was like, all right, well, what are the stats? And I, I did some research, and, and I'm pulling from um, the Polyclass Foundation, their stats, National Child Kidnapping Facts. So that's my source. So take that credibility as you will. But um, according to them, 99.8% of the children who go missing actually come home. Nearly 90% of missing children have simply misunderstood directions or miscommunicated their plans are lost or run away. 9% are kidnapped by a family member in a custody dispute. 3% are abducted by non-family members, usually during the commission of a crime such as robbery or sexual assault. The kidnapper is often someone the child knows. Only about 100 children, 100, 
a fraction of 1%, are kidnapped each year in the stereotypical stranger abductions you hear about in the news. About half of those 100 children come home. Yeah. So I'm certainly not saying we shouldn't care. This is a terrible thing to have happen. But when we're talking about 100 children annually, this is a very, 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 very small risk compared to all of the other risks that are present against children and people and that sort of thing. And we are not measuring this risk correctly against other risk. It is a very uh, high-profile risk. It is a very scary risk, but it is not a very likely risk. Not to downplay it for those this happened to, but what I am saying is the chance of this happening. It's like the old guns versus swimming pools. What's more dangerous to a child? And, and this was presented in Freakonomics. And I cannot remember the actual stat, but it turns out swimming pools are far, far, far more likely to kill a child than a gun. But we viscerally react uh, more to the gun than the swimming pool, and we don't measure the risk correctly. Now, why am I bringing this up? What does this have to do with you know the price of tea in China? It goes to the same problem we have in information security, which is I don't think we use good, solid metrics and data to actually measure threats and risks in organizations. We react to mm-hmm. emotionally sexy stats. Or not stats, but events. No, I, I, I definitely think you're on something there. Um, no, no question about it. I, I will say that I, I don't think, uh, you know, just just being someone who's interested in in uh, risk and things like that, I, I highly suspect that this kind of data being exposed isn't really going to incrementally, ca- you know, cause more kids to be kidnapped uh, than otherwise would. I mean, I think if so, if somebody's uh, apt to do that, they don't really need data from VTech to go pick someone. So, you know, so, so I think that's that, that's that. I'm sure there's other creepy things that we can envision. You yeah, know, you know, but, and I'm I'm way out left field. I, right. I know, but I just but but I think where I think I think the issue here is that, um, you know, and, and you kind of said it right. When, especially when there's kids involved, but even more broadly, um, you know, when when these organizations lose their data, the harm, I, I I suspect, and I don't think again there's a lot of lot of data on this. I suspect the actual damage to to people is in in organizations. No, not necessarily credit card breaches and things like that, but I suspect that the average amount of damage to people in these breaches is, is fairly minimal. Uh, it's the PR, you know, it's, 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 Certainly. it's self in, you know, it's like self-inflicted gun wounds in the, you know, in, in, in the, uh, in the industry, right? We, we, we get ourselves whipped up into a frenzy and, oh my God, how could VTech do this? And, and now it's its own, its own thing. Right, it's its own risk, you know. You don't, you, you know that if you, if you, kind of, however inane the data is, and I'm not necessarily saying that Vtex data was inane or unimportant, but almost uh, however unimportant the data is, if it gets breached, you're going to end up on, you know, on the front page of something, and you don't want that. So, you know, here we yeah, are. Yeah, certainly. Uh, although, you know, we'll see. Many, many organizations have survived. Not saying that that's a good excuse, but it happens. True. You know, after you know, after these events. 
Yeah, fair enough. So, anything else on that one? No, and I, I sort of, you know, I know that a lot of people probably misunderstood my point there, uh, or likely to. I'm not downplaying the, the risk to turn at all. I'm just sort of showing some stats and pointing out that we suck as humans at measuring risk. No, it's, yeah, trust me, you're right on. There's a, there's a lot of, um, on that particular point, that's a no. per, that's a very frustrating one for me personally. <laughs> in, in just full, full disclosure, I do not have children, so therefore I cannot possibly understand what it's like to be a parent. I agree, but still. But, but I do, and I, um, I think it's important to have you know. I think it's really important to understand what from a from a personal perspective the risks of of certain things. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, for instance, it's much more dangerous to drive to the airport than it is to fly once you're at the airport. <laughs> and, you know, and well, I, I guess part of the way I look at it is we only have a finite amount of energy we can spend on life risk yes. mitigation. Exactly. Right? So you've got to play the odds a little bit. Where's the best use of your energy? Right. You know? That's right. Um, so anyway. Anyway, but we're here to talk about what we can learn about these breaches, and right. what, what I'm saying is, you know, if you're a, if you're a consumer product thing, an Internet of Things vendor, you know, don't don't think about the data that you're collecting in the singular. Think about you know the the um, you know the the pot the potential damage that it could cause in aggregate, um, and and then act appropriately. So there you have it. So moving on to our next story, which comes from Krebs on security. Title is DHS gives firms free penetration tests. So I hadn't actually heard of this. There's a program called the uh, National Cybersecurity Assessment and Technical Services uh, Program, or NCATS. And apparently this is, I'm not exactly sure how long this program has been going on for, but this program provides two different types of penetration tests. One is called a risk vulnerability assessment, and the other is called a cyber hygiene assessment. And uh, the relatively self-explanatory, what, what they might individually do. Um, apparently last year, in 2014, 53 private companies took them up on this, mostly in the energy and financial services sectors. And it sounds like they're they're probably smaller on the smaller end of the scale, likely not to be able to afford to do this on their own. Um, kind of an interesting program. Um, you know, there's there's always the contention about you know what what's the government doing and competing with commercial penetration testing companies. They had a uh, Krebs had an interesting interview with Dave Vitell, uh, who had a who had an interesting perspective. You know that. It's actually probably a net good thing that the DHS is doing this because uh, without having some taste for the you know the vulnerabilities that are out in the wild, they're going to make very uninformed policy type decisions. So that was that was one uh, you know, one point. Another point he brought up, which I thought was pretty interesting, is that you know when when you have DHS or government employee penetration testers. Who is their allegiance to? So if they uncover certain kinds of data or let's say they discover some un, you know some, some zero day in a piece of software used at one of their uh, targets, 
they're, they probably have a duty to resp- you know, provide that back to an organization like the NSA and, and possibly not report that to the customer or to the, the software vendor. So that's an interesting uh, one. Uh, the other, some of the other discussions I thought were pretty interesting uh, are when you have a, and this is just a human nature type thing, when you get something free, you tend to undervalue it. This is true. And and so if you aren't paying for this penetration test and you get some results back, how likely is the organization going to be to act on those results? Yeah, I was, I've got a bunch of notes on this one too, and that was one of the questions I had is I'd be very curious what the remediation rates are of findings. Yeah, I don't think there was any uh, – I didn't see any uh, any data on that. Um, and then the, 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 last, uh, the last interesting thing I saw was – that um, this was a just, uh, I guess, a rhetorical question too. That you know, when when uh, when organizations have these tests done, what's the likelihood that the organization may actually uh, use that as an excuse to deprioritize security? And because hey, you know, the government came out and penetration tested us, and we passed. Right. You know, go us. We must be. We must be spending too much because it's good enough for government work, right? And and you know, anybody who's familiar with pen tests would know that that's that's really the the wrong way to look at it. Particularly because this is probably not a a very comprehensive test. Well, and this is one thing that I had a lot of questions about. I, I guess at the at the start, it's better than nothing. Right, it it could be raising awareness for certain organizations that wouldn't otherwise be doing or caring about these things. So, uh, could for some organizations that otherwise wouldn't do this for themselves, that's probably a positive. But there's there's a this is fraught with all sorts of peril that could or could not be mitigated depending on how well they put this together. I don't know. Um, I'm curious who's actually conducting these pen tests and vulnerability assessments. Are they government employees? Are they contractors? Are they third parties? One thing that I've seen in my many years in this industry is that not all pen tests are created equal or vulnerability assessments are created equal. That That is a broad, broad, broad category. And it really comes down to methodology, scope, intentions, uh, rules of engagement, the experience of the testers, the tools they're using, how good are they at hand coding, you know, their own uh, exploits to test? Uh, how good are they at that at at moving off just normal, normal, uh, you know, pen testing tools and do manual assessments? And in fact, one of the stats from the report was that manual testing was required to identify sixty seven percent of the vulnerability findings, as opposed to off the shelf automated vulnerability scans, which is interesting. It had that's both tells us they are doing some manual testing and also is a bit of an indictment of the vulnerability, automated vulnerability tools they're using. Um, are they doing authenticated scans? Are they doing unauthenticated scans? Uh, you know, are they doing true black box pen testing? Are they doing gray box, white box? Do these guys have any understanding of the business risk and what these uh, assets are doing so that they can communicate that in the reporting? I mean, one thing that I found that matters a great deal in, in a pen test is is the usefulness of the report that comes back from those pen testers. Or are they just throwing a bunch of vulnerabilities at somebody? I don't know. Um, it, again, it's better than nothing. But it may not be 
everything. And, and, you know, frankly, we have to get away from this concept of using, hey, we get a pen test once a year and we're good. We, I really am a big believer in moving into this continuous compliance, you know, continuous testing kind of methodology. Now, it doesn't mean you don't you, – if you can only afford a, a good quality pen test once a year, that's better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. But throughout – you know, when you're not doing your pen test, you need to be constantly looking for vulnerabilities with some sort of tools and, and not just trying to fix it once a year in my opinion. But – you know, you know that was kind of my first thought. Is there's a lot that is left open when you start talking about pen testing when you really dig into it, and this is one of those great sound bites, and it makes sense if you don't know a lot about doing pen tests and doing vulnerability assessments. But I don't know. I don't know enough about the program to really vet it, but uh, it's better than nothing, I suppose. Yeah, and they they didn't. I don't think they uh, they didn't agree to be interviewed uh, about the part. The DHS didn't agree to be interviewed about the program. So I think there's a, there's a lot of a lot of open yeah. questions that we we really don't have answers for. But you know, for instance, uh, you know, is there a is there an upper bound on how much the DHS is willing to spend on your test? <laughs> and, right. And, uh, and you know, and I, I I know that one of the one of the concerns. I've seen a lot of organizations express when working with uh, the government on things like this is, you know, what what kind of assurance do you as an organization who have agreed to this test have that your uh, your your data or your the results of your findings are not going to you know appear in response to some freedom of information request. Well, and the other thing that was brought up here too is what if they find a new O day in something and do right. they tell you or do they report it to the CIA or the NSA? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing that I that I had a thought on as I kind of projected out into the future is, well, this is interesting. How close are we to now the government, the U.S. government, doing routine mass scanning of all the IP addresses in the U.S. and doing vulnerability assessments? And forcing you to remediate high and criticals uh, risks that they identify or risk being taken offline as a threat to the rest of the internet and critical infrastructure. Yeah, that's a good question. And and uh, you know, also one of the things they they talked about in here was uh, they apparently also run phishing tests as part of their the the risk and vulnerability assessment. And they found twenty five percent of their <laughs> a click rate of twenty five percent basically. And so, you know, it, kind of carrying your uh, your your idea a little bit farther, do they start sending phishing, you know, test fishes out to the to the population and see who falls and you know does falls for it? And does that does that uh, you know become you know useful somehow? You know, like you're, you wow. have to pay higher taxes if you click on. <laughs> we know who to send to the re-education camps. There, there you go. Yes. What are you in for? Murder. What are you in for? Clicked on a phishing link too many times. <laughs> oh, boy. But it, it's interesting. You know, they have to do something, right? So they're doing something. But what I see is heading towards is clearly we're going to start defining, in my mind, more and more services and organizations as critical infrastructure and the government is going to step further and further into trying to quote unquote secure that infrastructure mm, yep that sounds right whether we like it or not we're we're from the government and we're here to help that's right <laughs> all right we, 
So moving on to our next story, which comes from CSO Online, and the title is Insurance Companies Will Crack Down on Cybersecurity in 2016. Insert whip crack sound here. So, so this is, uh, you know, this is... By the way, something we projected, something we predicted. Yes. This story. We, uh, we talked about this many times that this was coming. Well, I, I, I want to I make sure that it's that this story here is put into the proper context because this is a set of predictions released. You do not understand clickbaiting at all, do you? No, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> all right, fine. Put an accurate story out there. <laughs> so, so this is this comes from a, a a report produced by Raytheon and WebSense, who are I guess one and the same now. Uh, as part of their, you know, the the gluttony of 2016 cybersecurity predictions put out by every security company out out there, uh, and and so their uh, their focus, at least partly in this report, is on the impact of cybersecurity insurance. So they're they're pre- you won't believe prediction number seven. <laughs> That's right. So they're uh, they're this pre- local man. Re- Thought about prediction number eight, and it changed his life. <laughs> prediction number six helped this lady lose three hundred seventy-two pounds, and then you won't believe what happens. Okay, I'll stop. Sorry, Cole. Yeah, let me know when you're done. You Why? Well, you're just going to edit out of the show anyway. True. So, uh, so, so they they forecast that there are four inputs or four factors into the cyber insurance actuarial models. Uh, the first being market cap, the second being risk profile, third being target profile, and the fourth being responsiveness. And you know they they uh, they also go on with some interesting stats, saying that eighty five percent of U.S. companies who earn more than a hundred million dollars in revenue uh, have some sort of a cyber insurance policy, and uh, of those forty four percent have filed a claim. Which I thought was was interesting. Um, now, now having said that, I'm going to go take my gloves off and start beating snot out of it. So here's the here's the deal. I I, I see and hear a lot of pontification about the pricing of cyber insurance and you know what's what's going to happen with the insurance industry and oh my god they're going to die if they don't do something different let me just say i want to call everybody's nerves the insurance companies are going to be okay they're very very good at making money don't worry about them they're okay so here's the deal market cap i do not believe market cap has a damn thing to do with anything, right? Let's just, and really the rest of it probably doesn't either. So here's the deal. When you buy an insurance policy, right, you are not signing up that insurance carrier for unlimited liability. You're buying a defined amount of coverage, right? So if you are a $100 billion a year company, oh, go ahead. And by the way, that insurance company also has their own insurance called reinsurance. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, go on. You're That's probably going right. to get there. But That's... that also limits their liability. Exactly. Exactly right. So so anyway, um, and just by the way, you would be it's 
it's crazy the amount of diversity of types of insurance that are out there. And I think I may have mentioned it before. Like, there's coupon insurance, right? If you are a retailer, you can buy insurance against the likelihood that there will be more than your expected amount of coupon redemption, right? Seems reasonable. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is not. I, I've seen extreme couponers in TLC. You need that kind of insurance, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, a lot of game shows use insurance. Uh, so, so it's it, this is not a this is not a uh, you know a, a really odd thing. But but anyway, getting back to where I was going, it doesn't matter if you're a hundred billion dollar a year company. If you buy a fifty million dollar policy, doesn't matter. There, the the insurance company's liability is limited at the amount of the policy. Right and and minus whatever the deductible is, the only thing that really matters is what's the likelihood that they're going to have to pay out. Indeed. Now, I think what we have been arguing or not arguing, but discussing over time, is do insurance companies truly understand cyber risk? Oh, I said the cyber word. Uh, and can they adequately measure the actuarial tables of? infosec risk as opposed to other risks that they measure yeah how likely is it they 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 need to know how likely is it they're going to have to pay out and are there different factors in different kinds of companies that will um you know influence the amount of times that they'll that they'll have to pay out and the amount the percentage of the you know the, the the insured limit that they'll have to pay you know and and I think one of the things that gets lost in the noise, even though they actually have it here in the article, is that for for a hundred million dollar policy, uh, the the average deductible apparently is twenty five million bucks, which basically means that you know if you lose a bunch of money, if you're Target and you you know you lose hundreds of millions of dollars in a breach, you know you got to pay the first twenty five million dollars out of pocket. You can only start filing a claim from twenty five million up to a hundred million. You know, that $25 million is pretty motivational. And we thought our health insurance deductible sucked. <laughs> yes. And and the, so there's a quote in here, which um, I think is, uh, uh, boy, let's see, did it, where's, where is that? Insurance companies put in high deductibles that will get rid of most of the lower level breaches. They only want there to be... They, they only want to be there for the big stuff. It's like getting health insurance, but it only covers cancer. No, it's not only like insurance that covers cancer. It's like catastrophic health insurance. That's what it's like. Wow, that was profound. No, I, it, it, it's... <laughs> I agree with you. I agree. I agree. It, yes, you're going to pay the little stuff on your own. You're not going to file... It's like getting a fender bender. You're not going to go to your insurance company for your auto and then file on that. You're just going to pay it out of pocket and be done. Exactly. So I, once again, I, I, I honestly don't think that the insurance companies are in a big problem. Yes, they they don't have a great handle... I think on the likelihood of claims, they're starting to understand that. But I'm not even sure that that makes sense because the technology and the in the risk landscape change at such a dramatic pace that you know whatever the the rate was last year probably isn't going to be terribly informative as to what it is next year. And and that's you know that's the the whole point about insurance is pricing in that unknown into the premiums and 
also turning around, like you said earlier, and reinsuring, right? So, so the, the insurance companies are going to be okay. They know how to manage this stuff. And, you know, yeah, because they know what they don't know as well. So they have the ability to, to control their losses while they're figuring this out. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, anyway, I'm a, I'm a little frustrated on that one. You, you, you get worked up about insurance topics. I, I do. You're, I think you're one of only seven people in the United States who get worked up about insurance stuff. But that's fine. Carry on. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you enjoy it. So our, this, this is why you get invited to all those parties. It's true. It's true. All right. So our uh, our last story for today comes from oh. Forbes. Oh. Before we jump into that, yeah. uh, one thing this reminded me of, so this was from Raytheon. Did you hear as well that Lockheed Martin is selling its uh, InfoSec security slash cyber security division? I did, and that is oh. um, really interesting. It is. I, I don't know what that means exactly. They're going to focus on – well, they bought Sikorsky, which is known for helicopters, so they want to focus on that. And uh, you know their military – uh, other military office offerings in terms of fighters and that sort of thing. You know, they they make the F-35 and uh, that sort of stuff. So amongst other military aircraft, C-130s and all sorts of good stuff. So uh, I don't know. Does that mean that we're hitting peak cyber for one of these big defense contractors to be getting out of that business? Honestly, I think it might. Um, I mean, it's... I don't know. Peak cyber is the right yeah, term, but that, that was me you know, being clickbaity. <laughs> I I do think it's indicative of uh, you know of at least their evaluation of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, it it it, um, it it's kind of interesting. Uh, oh, although you know what, maybe maybe it is just them wanting to focus back on their their core competency. I don't know, but you know, it is it is interesting because everybody else. Uh, has, you know, whether it's Raytheon or Boeing or, you know, whoever, they all have their site, you know, and they're, and they're growing them pretty aggressively. There's their cybersecurity uh, c- capability. So, you know, I, I'm not sure what their what their game is here, but it is an interesting development. Indeed. Anyway, that's all. Right. So, uh, so anyway, our last story for tonight comes from Forbes, and the title is Seven Tips from the FBI to Prepare Your Firm for a Cyber Attack. Yay! So the FBI in this article uh, is is reported as having seen the following trends in cybersecurity issues: hacktivists use computers beyond lawful means to make political statements. Blah blah blah. The U.S. and businesses are systematically attacked by hackers sponsored by foreign governments for terrorism or to gain a competitive advantage. Criminal enterprises use cyber to perpetuate old schemes such as extortion. Really? Really, yeah. There are fraudsters who, you will will not believe this one, there are fraudsters who want to steal your personally identifiable information and empty out your bank account. Uh, And then uh, industrial espionage for competitive advantage, which I'm not really sure how that's different from number two, but um, they they want to steal your product information that requires years of your research. So I'm shocked. I, I'm literally. I'll give you. Shocked. I'll give you a minute to to re, to recompose yourself. This is. I mean, this sort of insight is. Yeah. So here we go. Here are the seven tips to prepare your firm for a cyber attack. Number one, I'll give. I'll give them at least a credit that this Forbes article is not 
in a slideshow. True. But it does have two listicles in one. True. So anyway, moving on uh, to the the FBI's seven tips to prepare your firm for a cyber attack. Number one, we, we should have like a drum roll. Understand what your network looks like. Even after all the mergers, acquisitions, and consolidations, create a map of your network networks and prepare a list of devices on the network and the users on the network. Doesn't actually say what you do with those. Just have it. You got to have it. I, In a binder. <laughs> I guess it's because when the FBI, after you've been horribly hacked... When the FBI comes in to help clean up the mess, they'll, they'll be like, well, who, you know, can you can you give us the network map and tell us who should be here and who shouldn't be here? That will be very <laughs> helpful for us. Mind you, there's nothing in here about how you keep that up to date or keep that accurate. It's just do it once and you're done. Right. So, so I, I mean, I, th- I think it's a good idea. And, you know, as far as what you would want to do with it, right, you, you, you really want to... Oh, yeah. Asset and inventory management and... You know, knowledge of your environment is absolutely foundational to all other aspects of IT security. However, they're making it sound like a once point in time activity, and it is not. <laughs> yes. So it, it and that's that's kind of frustrating uh, to me because uh, all of these things tend to be like platitudes. These lists are are so consolidated. You know, all you got, all we got to do is. Create a network map and, and a list of user IDs. Number one, that's really hard to do and keep up to date. Number two, it doesn't actually accomplish anything. You have to do something with that data. Anyway, uh, the the number two recommendation, back up your data routinely and store it off-site. And I would add offline. Right. <laughs> and I would add multiple revisions for crypto lockers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And don't negate the data that's stored on your employees' laptops. Indeed. So moving on to number three. Know where your most important data is being held. Think about where it should be held and the protocols that gain access to that information. Um, and this is a... I don't know any... Just breathe, Jerry. Just breathe. I don't know any... I mean, this is, a, again, another platitude, right? I don't know any company, I've never heard of any company that knows where its data is. I mean, like... like it, Okay, but it doesn't mean you don't try. I, no, at, I at agree. The base, at the base, there's value there. It just, it's not that easy. Correct. Right. And, and also, what does it, what do you do with that knowledge? Right. What's the point? They're, they're forgetting the... They're just making this assumption that you know what to do with it once yeah. you have this knowledge. And then, it's like, right. okay, and it's missing the and then. Right. Uh, okay, so number four, develop policies for cybersecurity. What policies govern the use of data and network by employees? Train your employees to on use policies. Define where your logs and data are being held. List applications running on the network, including applications developed in-house. Helpful. Because, and then, yeah. and then... Dot, right. dot, dot. Um, okay, maybe maybe we should define what policies are good versus bad. Because you can have a policy that says, sure, share all of our private data on an open Dropbox site. That could be a policy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, 
these lists frustrate me. So number five, be aware that bad actors could already be in your system right now and have been for a long time. Make sure your IT department, your IT departments are aware of updates and are patching vulnerabilities in your systems. Those are two completely distinct tasks and have very different focus and ways of executing. Those should be two different items. And but, again, it doesn't tell you, okay, so if they're already in, what do I? What does that mean? Look, if, as long as you keep your systems patched and you run antivirus, you shouldn't have any problems, right? You know, my God, Jerry, why are you not the our cybersecurities are? <laughs> oh, boy. Number six, develop a response plan in the event of an attack. Have a plan to work with your attorney's PR firm, and your board of directors have a team of forensic experts and outside firms available. Um, now, I mean, those that actually has a. Uh, I mean, there's actually it's reasonable. Yeah, there's actually there's actually an and also there, right? Which is good. And then finally, establish a relationship with your local FBI office because apparently they're going to want to see all that data, you know, that you've compiled after you get hacked. They can come in and. You can show them all of your You know, data. some FBI agents worked really hard on this list, and you're not showing any appreciation for this. I'm, I'm saying that, God damn it, this stuff is hard, and these lists are, I don't know, they're not that helpful. <laughs> Jerry, were you abused by a listicle when you were a child? I think so. <laughs> I think so. All right. Anyway, that shall we call it a show? We're going to call it a show. All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, thank you for listening again. Sorry for the delay in, uh, in this this episode. Look forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, you can find links to the stories we talked about today on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at Defensive Sec. Uh, you can follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at Lerg, that's L-E-R-G, and me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk again next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you guys. You guys are the best. And if we haven't mentioned lately, thank you to all the Patreon donors, and thank you for the, all the awesome feedback on iTunes. We, uh, we really get a kick out of that. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.